0: So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: Let's begin. And let's begin with a proverb from China that is centered on questions of power. It goes like this. It is easy to find a thousand soldiers, but it's hard to find one good general. Welcome, I'm John Donvan, host of Intelligence Squared US, and that proverb coming from China helps set up this program tonight, not only because we are going to be debating Chinese power and what America's response should be to it, but also because to launch this particular season we are headlining this program with a conversation with, as the proverb from China recommends, one good general. General. Get ready for a strategic discussion of America's challenges around the globe, really around the world, led by General David Petraeus, who will be in conversation with Max Boot, military historian and also a good friend of Intelligence Squared US, whose upcoming book is called The Road Not Taken Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam. Please welcome David Petraeus and Max Boot.
0: You know, General Petraeus is really one of the people I admire most in the world. And I think, you know, out of all of the Americans who have served in uniform and and served so valiantly, I think very few have managed to combine uh, the the technical side of warfare tactics and operations with a broader grand strategy and diplomacy and, and communications and all those other higher elements of command. And I think really nobody in an American uniform has done that better uh, since the days of Dwight D. Eisenhower than the man who I am privileged to, uh, to interview you.
2: here tonight. It was a privilege. Thank
0: you. So with that, let's, let's jump into our conversation. The topic here tonight is China. But before we get to China, what do you think about the, the Trump foreign policy? And is there a distinctive uh, Trump policy? Is there a
2: distinctive Trump doctrine? Well, I think it's still emerging, obviously. Perhaps interesting to some, I would contend that we're, you would characterize this more as continuity than change. Uh, But let's just review, you know, he he criticized the relationship with China, uh, took a call from the Taiwanese president, first time in decades, tweeted about it afterwards, uh, and then ultimately called President Xi, embraced the One China policy, had the Mar-a-Lago summit, and is engaged in uh, strategic dialogue between several different groups that were established as an outcome of that. But you can go down issue after issue, NATO, uh, whatever, critical at times during the campaign, but ultimately coming back to the norm with the exception of trade. Of course, pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a very, very big deal, as Joe Biden might have said. Um, and then also uh, with immigration, perhaps uh, there is, we, you, know, you had the Mexican ban certainly softened, halted by the courts. And then finally, climate uh, pulled out of the Paris Accord, or will pull out in 2020, there is one big issue that I think actually is, again, still emerging, and that is the seeming ambivalence at times uh, about whether or not to have the U.S. continue to lead the rules-based international system that we helped bring into existence in the wake of a 50-year period that included two ruinous world wars and the Great Depression.
0: What do you think is the impact abroad of some of the president's let's say, unusual behavior at home, and I'm thinking you know, the, the kind of uninhibited tweeting, the attacks on the press, which he calls the enemy of the American people, what impact, if any, does that have abroad on the U.S. role?
2: Well, it, obviously, it, it causes people to, to question, uh, again, consistency, commitment to values that we have long promoted for the rest of the world and uh, the rest of this, keeping in mind that this is a president who truly actually believes in doing what he wrote in his book, uh, about doing, which is before you negotiate with somebody else, you punch the other guy in the nose before you even sit down, and who sees value in in some cases a lack of consistency and there is some merit to this. You can actually argue that that, that there 's some merit to that in business. You can argue perhaps there 's some merit uh, to it in international relations, but you do not want the other side thinking that you might be sufficiently Uh, irrational to conduct a first strike or to do something, you know, the the so-called unthinkable. Do you think that the,
0: I mean, you've been fairly bullish on China. Do you think that the 21st century is destined to be the Chinese century? Are they going to overtake us and become the dominant power?
2: Well, I think inevitably they're going, you know, a a country of 1.3 billion people inevitably will have a larger economy than we do. Their per capita income may still be one-seventh or so. I mean, there's a real question, actually, does China get rich before it gets old the way Japan did, or does it get old before it gets rich? Because again, their per capita income is still vastly lower uh, than ours. Um, But clearly, that economy is going to surpass ours at some point. It may not come quite so soon to a theater near us, uh, as they say, but we'll see. Uh, By the way, in real real terms, in dollar, uh, real terms, in nominal growth, in each of the last Three years, I believe it is, the U.S. actually outgrew China. Now some of that is obviously because of currency fluctuations. It's going back the other way this year. Will they top us militarily? Look, that is going to be a, a pretty steep climb. They spend one quarter of what we spend right now or less. Uh, you take all of the aircraft carriers of the world and flat-deck amphibs, and we have more of them than all the rest of the world together. It's not to say they don't have near-peer capabilities in space and cyberspace, certainly. A lot of rapid improvement, and very much on the cutting edge of technology. I mean, those people that set a closed society, a society which is cutting off now the VPN access to the Internet and so forth, can't innovate, have obviously never been to Hangzhou uh, and and, uh, seen Alibaba or been in Beijing with Xiaomi or Baidu or some of these others. These are serious innovators, uh, and we should never get complacent about that.
0: What do you think of the of the Graham Allison thesis? And Graham Allison is the professor yeah. at the Harvard Kennedy School who just published a book called mm-hmm. Destined for War, in which he suggests that based on his historical study, that when you have a rising great power and an existing great power, that in more cases than not, the result is a conflict. So are we destined for war with China?
2: I don't think so, uh, but we certainly ought to take steps to prevent that. Uh, Some of those steps should be to maintain and indeed improve uh, our capability and our military readiness and all the rest of that as a deterrent force, but also strategic dialogue. I'm very much from the Henry Kissinger School believing that it really does pay to sit down with a very significant high-level interlocutor, develop uh, trust in each other, even if, again, the objectives may be diametrically opposed. In some cases, understanding their red lines, they understand ours. We're in a different age from any of those case studies that Graham Allison's book studies, uh, which note that I think it's three-quarters of the time that you have a rising power and an established power, Sparta and Athens, uh, that ultimately and inevitably they went to war, as if this is an inevitability. Look, we're in a nuclear age, and war as an inevitability, I think, should give us all a great deal of pause. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank
1: you. And now on to our debate about China, a country which you just heard David Petraeus explain uh, is a country that's done extraordinary things in the past 25 years. And they also mentioned Graham Allison, the Harvard historian. And if you were a student in Graham Allison's class, you would get a quiz on your first day of class, asking you to guess this: In what year will China? overtake the United States as the world's largest auto market. A second question, in what year will China become the number one market for luxury goods? And in what year will it become the world's leading market for all goods overall? The correct answer to all three questions, to the shock of most students, is that China is already first in all of these categories and has been for years. And if you didn't know that, then welcome to the club of underpaid attention. But boy, is attention being paid now as China gets bigger, not just economically, but also in significant ways militarily as well. Soft power and hard power. China is growing them both. Which means what for the U.S.? Well, that is a complicated question or set of questions which we will be debating tonight. Our theme, Unresolved, Face Off with China. We have four debaters. They will each be flying solo, taking stands for and against the positions in our stated resolutions to see how far we can get in resolving the unresolved. Let's please meet our debaters. Please welcome first Ian Bremmer. Ian, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You are the president and founder of the Eurasia Group. That's a global risk and consulting firm. And Ian, you have famously predicted that Donald Trump will get the full eight years in office. And yet Donald Trump called you fake news. So I guess it's fake
4: except for the eight years
1: part. Is that how it works?
4: I, I suspect he's forgotten uh, about that, that one comment, but... Uh you know, if, if, if you ask me, is an incumbent going to come in again on balance, I think that's a good bet. Ladies and gentlemen, Ian Bremmer. Our next debater, please welcome Elizabeth Economy.
1: Elizabeth, you have a book coming out. It's called The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the Rise of the Chinese State. Not only are you the Director of Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and the CV Star Senior Fellow, but you were decades ahead of most of the field when you began focusing on China as an environmental story way, way back. And how has the story changed since you first got interested in it?
5: Um, I guess... Uh, If I were going to uh, title my uh, book on the environment now, I probably wouldn't title it, The River Runs Black. Uh, I might title it, The River Doesn't Run Anymore. Uh, But I will say that I I think uh, for the first time, maybe, the Chinese leadership has uh, the understanding and the capacity and the will to make a difference. So I am, for the first time in all those decades, pretty optimistic.
1: Okay, thanks, Elizabeth Economy. Our next debater, please welcome Noah Feldman. For you two, Noah, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You're a professor at Harvard Law and you're a contributing writer for Bloomberg View. Uh, You have titled your book about global competition, Cool War. So we all know what a hot war is and we're familiar with the Cold War. Define cool war for us.
6: Well, a cool war is when you have geopolitical struggle, as does exist between the US and China, but at the same time, you have deep cooperation and mutual dependence on the economic front. So when you've got both of those things happening at the same time, you need to be somewhere in the middle between hot and cold and I settled like, on like cool. Like
1: frenemies kind of thing?
6: Yeah, it's a bit, a bit like frenemies or imagine a, a relationship you just can't get out of.
1: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Noah Feldman.
6: And our fourth debater, please welcome David Schombaugh.
1: David, welcome to Intelligence Squared. You are the Gaston Singer Professor of Asian Studies, Political Science, and International Affairs and Director of the China Policy Program at George Washington University. We learned that you and your wife, Ingrid, are both non-native Chinese speakers. So do you two find occasion to speak Chinese at home together?
3: <laughs> Uh, She teaches Chinese five days a week. I use it in my research and when I meet my Chinese colleagues. So by the time we come home, I think that's the last language we really want to speak.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, ladies and gentlemen, David Chamba and our panel of debaters.
3: (laughs) I'm John Donvan.
1: When we return, our debaters tackle their first topic. Is Trump making China great again? Stay with us. And to remind you of how this is going to work, we will be working through a series of resolutions, one at a time. For each motion, the debaters will declare yes or no to the statement, and they will have one minute to tell you where they stand. Let's move to our first resolution. Inspired by the man who tweets from the White House, the Chinese government has labeled emotional venting that should stop. Those tweets are not stopping. Our first motion declares, Trump is making China great again. Ian Bremmer, On that motion, how do you declare yes or no?
4: I'm a no. Uh, You have one minute to explain your point. I think China's making China great again. I I think that's very clear. Uh, Certainly in terms of the relative stability that we have under Xi Jinping, uh, the comparative happiness of the average Chinese and support for their government, which I think is higher than the average American for the American government these days. But Trump himself is not making China, great again. Uh, The Chinese really want stability. And there's no question it's true that because the Americans are leaving the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Americans are leaving the Paris Climate Accord, that creates some space for China. But China would much rather have stability and also have more time to keep their head low. Just keep building, focus on stability, spend the money with one belt, one road, all the rest. With the concerns around North Korea, with all the allies wondering what's going to happen in their future, they're thinking about alternatives, hence Japan and India. Increasingly together Hence concerns that the North Koreans Are going to blow things up Driving South Korea into focusing on more security Japan too that's None of time. that is good for China Ian, that's your time Thank you very much The
1: resolution again Trump is making China great again Liz Economy, how do you declare yes or no?
5: I am also a no, but for very different reasons. Uh, I think that this is a popular notion uh, that is uh, fundamentally flawed. Uh, President Trump may be crippling uh, U.S. prestige uh, and influence globally, may be diminishing U.S. greatness, uh, but this doesn't make China great. Uh, Greatness uh, is not a zero-sum game. Uh, It's not like U.S. greatness goes down and Chinese greatness uh, goes up. Uh, Greatness has to be earned. Uh, As Winston Churchill said, the price of greatness is responsibility. Uh, And that means that China needs to be able to look beyond its narrow self-interest to embrace and address the needs of others. Uh, It needs to be ready to step up to the plate, uh, to forge an international agreement uh, when you're faced with a global threat uh, or a global challenge. Uh, Thus far, we haven't seen China do much of this. Uh, So, President Trump can't uh, make China great again. Only China can make it great again, but thus far, China hasn't done that.
1: Let's move on to Noah Feldman. On the motion, Trump is making China great again. Noah Feldman, how do you declare yes or no? I declare yes.
5: When
6: you walk away from global leadership in a very open and public way, i.e. you tell people, I'm not interested in leading you, I want to make my own country great again, you create a huge vacuum. And there's pressure on somebody else to step into that vacuum, especially if, like China, that entity would benefit from stability. So that means there's a stability gap. China is obligated, whether they would like to or not, to step into that gap. And we see that with the way that Xi Jinping has been taking global leadership on a range of issues, or at least presenting himself as taking global leadership. Second, and even more concretely, when it comes to our historic allies in Asia, in the Pacific, who rely on us for security... Uh, Our current president has, unfortunately, sent a message to them that our guarantees of security are not as strong as they have been in the past. And they hear that loud and clear, and they, too, are obligated to react to that. And so they have to look inevitably at closer relations with China, perhaps economically, uh, in order to try to assure their stability that way. So a gap will be filled. There's that beep. Very effective. It silenced you, didn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: David Chamba on the motion: Trump is making China great again. How do you declare, yes or no?
3: I'm also a no. Um, Trump could help. The reasons uh, that Noah just indicated, I agree with him there. But it's up to China to make itself great again, as, as Ian Ian said. This is a long-term project for the Chinese. Uh, A 200-year project, really, or since the 1870s is when they began their effort to rejuvenate themselves after after a couple hundred bad years. They call the centuries of shame and humiliation. But greatness, I would just note, is measured not just by capabilities, but by attraction and uh, whether others uh, seek to emulate you. This is Joseph Nye's concept of soft power, of course. So uh, I would look at China um, and ask, is China a model for others? And I find that it is not a model for others. It's a sui generis country, Um, very much out for itself. The question is, if you're going to be a great power, you have to be magnanimous, amongst other things. And it's an open question whether China can be magnanimous.
1: Thank you, and time is up. We have three no's and one yes. Noah Feldman, as the yes, you're going to find yourself probably getting a little bit more time. Uh, But I want to take to you the question that all three of your uh, now opponents in this particular round take the position that greatness is uh, something, as Liz Economy said, needs to be earned. And David Chambaugh said, greatness is something that is signaled when uh, there are attempts to emulate it. And there's very little attempt to emulate China. Therefore, there's no greatness even in play here, whether Trump's involved or not. Can you take that on?
6: Yeah, I mean, sometimes Shakespeare put it best, this is one of those examples. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, some have greatness thrust upon them. It's not true that global greatness is totally an internal product. It involves, unquestionably, internal action. You need to be stable, you need to at least appear to be magnanimous. But under circumstances where the world is looking for stability, where the region as well is looking for stability, there will be an impulse from outside to demand some forms of leadership. And China may find itself with little choice but to adopt a position that we associate with greatness, with a great power, simply because of our self-conscious attempt to absent ourselves from that space. So I'm not disagreeing that a country to be great must do things on its own, but I'm making the point that greatness is not only what you do, it's also what happens around you.
4: Ian Bremert to respond. It's too early to have greatness thrust upon China. Uh, America remains the world's only superpower. China's not close. Economically, certainly they have cash and they're spending it and they can direct it. Uh, but in terms of their diplomatic capabilities, you watch them in the G20 when they're kind of sitting by themselves and everyone else knows each other, not even close. Uh, you talk about their mili- capa- military capabilities, they're at best a regional power. Um, you talk about their technological capabilities, they're investing, they will get there over the long term, I believe, but they are not there yet. This is a very serious problem, and I would argue that, yes, Shakespeare's correct um, if you're actually the man with the plan and just waiting, and there it is. This is far too early for China to have great. Yeah, let
5: me just um, point out that if we look back um, pre-Trump, Uh, to China's reaction uh, to the Ebola crisis or even to global climate change. Uh, It did not step up to the plate. It had to be controlled. It had to be berated uh, into doing more. Uh, We look now, uh, post-Trump, and see that when the U.S. stepped back in in the face of the Muslim refugee crisis, Canada stepped up, Germany stepped up, but China was nowhere to be seen. Uh, So it's not as though China has the opportunity now. There are many opportunities for China to step up, but what we see is that other countries are stepping into the breach. Other countries are being the responsible powers, the great powers to some respect. It's not China.
6: Well, I I don't disagree that it's too soon, as as Ian says, but sometimes a country is not completely prepared for the stance that it's nevertheless obligated to take on. Arguably, World War I was too soon for the United States to have to get involved in Europe to try to resolve uh, the war towards its end, but there was little choice but to do so. And so I think, you know, great power status can be achieved slowly, and it can be achieved step by step. Was the United States a great power after World War I? I mean, in some sense, we as Americans imagine that the answer must be yes, but globally, arguably, that wasn't yet true. Maybe they they were a regional power. Our economy was not well developed. Were we a world leader with respect to humanitarianism at the time? No. Were we anywhere close to Britain? No. But we were on a trajectory that led us into a position of greatness. So to Liz's points, I I agree that it will be issue by issue. I agree that China will not follow our playbook for what a great country is. They will follow their own playbook for what that is, and they will do it on a slower and I think more openly self-interested basis.
1: And that concludes debate on this resolution. (laughs) We're going to move on to the second resolution. The resolution is the U.S. should play hardball With China on trade. The US should play hardball with China on trade. First, to respond on this resolution, Elizabeth Economy, do you declare yes or no?
5: So I declare, yes, uh, game on. You have one minute. Uh, I think you know, trade is a competitive game, and, and frankly, we should play hardball with every country. Uh, we want U.S. companies to win. Uh, but we also understand that as long as uh, the field is basically open and fair, uh, that everybody's generally playing by the same rules, that the U- U.S. companies are sometimes, perhaps even often, uh, going to lose. The problem with China is that it's constructed its own set of rules and its own game. Uh, and in this game, there is rampant intellectual property theft uh, from U.S. companies. Uh, it massively uh, distorts uh, trade through subsidies, uh, and it restricts or it blocks U.S. companies and others uh, from investing in core sectors of the Chinese economy. You know, China joined the WTO in 2001. It's been more than 15 years that the United States and the rest of the world has waited for China to learn the rules of the game. But if China's not going to play fair, then we have to play hardball.
1: Thank you, Liz Economy. And I just want to clarify, this resolution is about China using trade as a weapon, tactics like stopping imports of salmon from Norway and bananas from the Philippines to settle scores in political quarrels. So big is China's economy that these tactics often work and countries often cave, but should they be emulated? Again, the resolution, the U.S. should play hardball with China on trade. Noah Feldman, do you declare
6: yes or no? I declare no. The time to play hardball, and of course there are times for that, requires two conditions. One, you have to be very confident that you know what you're doing and that the people in charge on your side know what they're doing. Because if you go too far, you could escalate to difficult circumstances. The second requirement is that you have to have leverage. I don't think we qualify under either of these circumstances at, at present with respect to China. I don't, frankly, trust the Trump administration to escalate tensions with China over questions of trade Trump knows that will play well to his base. His instincts are towards protectionism. In the long run, in my view, uh, a closer trade relationship with China is a valuable thing for the United States. And uh, risking that, I think, is is real uh, under the conditions of Trump's presidency. Second, we need leverage. And there, of course, we have leverage at the trade level, at the economic level. But we have less leverage with respect to geopolitics. Right now, the U.S. really needs China's help on a wide range of security issues. Uh, North Korea, most uh, significantly, I really think that's a substantial lack of leverage. Thank you, Noah Feldman.
1: David Chambaugh, the US should play hardball with China on trade, do you declare yes or no?
3: I am also a no, um, for some of the reasons that Noah just indicated, mainly the one about escalation. that would result in what's known as mutual assured destruction in the Cold War in nuclear terms. This would result in mutual assured economic destruction. We are so uh, interdependent economically and we depend on and need uh, various Chinese goods in our country and uh, they, to a lesser extent, ours in their country. So, And we believe in open uh, borders and open trade. At least we did until the Trump administration. Um, Where I would play hardball, though, is non-investment. For reasons Liz has indicated, China's market is closed relatively, overwhelmingly, I'll say, closed to American investors. Uh, Here we are 30 years on, and if you look at the American Chamber of Commerce uh, quarterly surveys in Beijing, 81% of American companies say they feel unwelcome in China. Thank
1: you, David Chamba. The U.S. should play hardball with China on trade. Ian Bremmer, are you yes or no?
4: Yes. Um, This is the one that's toughest for me of the four. I'm kind of on the fence, but if you make me, I'll say yes. Look, One reason is because on North Korea, the Chinese were not going to move until the Americans really pushed. Yes, even Trump, with the potential of being a little unhinged, it got them. To much harder sanctions than they otherwise would have supported. The U.S. economy is much bigger than the China's economy today. That will not be true in five or ten years' time. There is more leverage in that. If there were a trade war, we would win it, though both would take damage. That would be much more challenging in five or ten years' time. Finally, Bannon, Gorka, others are gone. So the people that are most likely to do something that would truly cause confrontation aren't making the decisions. Trump may say stuff, but people like Lightheiser, frankly, Wilbur Ross, Mattis, others that are managing the China relationship are adults. And so ultimately, I do think we're going to have to be a little tougher on the Chinese. Thank you, Ian Bremmer.
1: So we have two yeses and two noes. And the name Steve Bannon has come up, and I want to mention... I want to remind everybody of the interview he gave shortly before departing his position in the White House to the American Prospect, where he told Robert Kuttner that we are at economic war with China already, that we need to be, quote, maniacally focused on this because China is, quote, cutting out the heart of American innovation, and we are five years away from losing that war. Noah Feldman, your response to that declaration of war already happening?
6: Fortunately, I think it's not yet the case. I think, though, that um, notwithstanding the presence of the grown-ups that Ian mentioned, there is still one other person he didn't mention, that is the person who's going to make the decision ultimately. And, you know, I think that it's entirely possible that the view that Steve Bannon expressed there is still believed in some form by relevant decision-makers in the White House, primarily the president.
1: This economy, your, your now opponent, temporary opponent, David Shambaugh, has argued that if, if we were to engage in the sorts of practices that... China is engaged in now, that we wouldn't be doing what Americans do, which is stand up for free trade, that it, in a sense to, to, to play hardball with China would be, to be getting down in mud that we don't want to get down into.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we've argued for 15 years, that we should be a model for China and that they will learn from us and gradually we're going to see the Chinese economy evolve into one that looks like ours, but that's not what's happened, right? You look back to, you know, 2012 Chinese, six Chinese solar companies dominated uh, the global market. Why? Because they had huge subsidies uh, from the Chinese government. If they didn't have those, company, those subsidies, they would have been bankrupt, right? They completely flooded our markets with their products. Uh, you know, we do have leverage. I mean, U.S. exports to China equal about two-thirds of 1% of our GDP. In contrast, Chinese exports to the U.S. equal about 4% of their GDP, I do think, to the other point that you were making um, about the uh, attack on the United States in terms of you know, our technology and our future, that it is a significant issue already, uh, and it will only grow. Uh, so I think that it's not just about the US, it's about a lot of countries standing up and saying, this is how we do business, and China, you're too big at this point, the second or first largest economy in the world, depending on how you uh, evaluate it. Uh, you have to play by the rules that everybody else is playing by, or you're going to suffer the consequences. And I think reciprocity, right, saying our market, your market is closed in these areas, well, maybe we're not going to let you invest either, is the way to go.
1: David Chamba, let's talk a little bit about what constitutes hardball, where you would draw the line.
3: I would vet every merger and acquisition um, attempt by a Chinese company towards an, to an American technology company. That's not hardball. That okay. is hardball. That is hardball, okay. Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, I would look very toughly at any investments by China in our energy sector, near national security locations um, around the country. Um, and I would just sort of hold back the approval process, you know, the way the Chinese do with us all the time. They just keep you hanging, and you never get your approval, unless you're President uh, Ivanka Trump, and then you get <laughs> 60, 60 patents overnight. Um, so, you know, we just have to play the game the way they play, they've been playing it with us. But that's
6: no So here we have an internal disagreement because you are arguing for hardball, but only on investment, not on trade. But, you know, that is not in fact how investment in the United States has historically worked and has meant to work. And that's not because we're so open-minded and we're trying to improve the wealth of people over the world. It's that we've actually believed that it's in our national interest to attract capital from abroad. Ian Bremer, what does winning or losing a trade war look like?
4: Look, I, I, I do agree with Xi Jinping that everyone is a loser in a trade war because ultimately there is a mutually assured economic destruction between the two countries. But I don't think playing hardball with the Chinese on trade leads you to a trade war. And in that regard, it's not mutually assured economic destruction. You hit someone with a nuke, it's really hard to imagine that doesn't continue to escalate. On trade, we hit the Chinese with a tariff. They hit us back usually with a tariff that is calculated very clearly to ...to cause exactly the same amount of economic damage... ...but with a bunch of stuff that doesn't bother them as much. I think they have to see that we're serious. Especially because... Multinational corporations based in the U.S. that are worth the most, the IT firms, look at China today and say they don't think they have a future. Facebook can't get in, even though Mark Zuckerberg learned Chinese, said that he would give a symbolic Chinese name to his child, and Xi Jinping said, that's nice, I'm not letting you in. Google, same problem. These companies will not coordinate because they're competitors with each other. It's not like China. The United States government is going to have to actually provide a little bit of strategic engagement here.
1: And that concludes debate on this resolution. Can the U.S. and China come to a grand bargain to contain North Korea? Still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. Welcome back to our debate tonight. We have four panelists debating a whole series of different motions. The theme is unresolved face off with China. On to our next resolution. North Korea has one powerful ally and it is China. If any country can influence North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, again, it is China. Our resolution for this round. The U.S. and China can forge a grand bargain to contain North Korea. Our first debater on this, Noah Feldman. Do you declare yes or no?
6: I'm going to say no. Um, I don't think that, in the end, there's a picture of Chinese national interest in which um, steps would be taken that would put North Korea in a situation where it was actually vulnerable to regime collapse. Now, containment, uh, is a, it's, a, it's a tricky word. And so if the resolution were to be interpreted to say, well, to hold North Korea back from using nuclear weapons, I would be inclined to say yes. But containment suggests something other than that. Containment suggests non-expansion. And I think for the moment, um, the risks to China of South Korea and North Korea potentially unifying in a way that leaves a hostile power on its border is so great that China will have to keep North Korea in place. And to keep North Korea in place at this point seems to require uh, accepting its nuclear program at least as strongly as it presently is. So I I don't see a containment strategy in that sense.
1: David Chambaugh, again, this resolution, the U.S. and China can forge a grand bargain to contain North Korea. Are you yes or no?
3: I was going to be a no, but I'm actually going to change my uh, vote and... Uh, be a little provocative and vote yes. We
1: appreciate that since you voted no. (laughs) I think it's just a
3: debate. We all know this is a real conundrum. There are no good resolutions or solutions or they would have been used and discovered already on on North Korea. But what we haven't talked about with the Chinese as far as I know is a post-unification scenario. If we can persuade the Chinese about a unified Korean peninsula uh, with essentially a South Korean regime... Uh, that does not uh, have American forces on it, and does not necessarily have an American alliance with it, Uh, that would alleviate their neuralgic national security concerns considerably. They can't stand the North Korean regime. They've had problems with the North Korean regime since June 1950, when the North attacked the South, and they didn't know. It's been 50 years of hell. So we have to bring them somehow to a regime transition uh, perspective uh, together. Thank
1: you. Time is up on that. And now Ian Bremer, the U.S. and China can forge a grand bargain to contain North Korea. Are you yes or no, Ian Bremer?
4: I'm going to say no, uh, in large part because I want to be with Noah on one of these. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, look, I, I, I think containing implies that we can keep them sort of where they are. And, you know, I look at what the North Koreans are now doing on cyber right the wanna cry virus hit not just the US but actually hit the chinese harder uh the attacks against the central bank in bangladesh the swift codes i don't see anything That looks like containment there And the fact that we're talking about nukes and ICBMs in the United States And not talking about cyber from North Korea Doesn't mean that this isn't a very serious problem I agree completely with David That the North Koreans are a very serious problem for China But also the Chinese themselves seem to be losing influence Remember, he had the half-brother assassinated While he was under Chinese protection I just don't think the Chinese believe they can do it So they won't try Thank you, Ian Bremmer
1: Liz Economy, once again stating the resolution, the U.S. and China can forge a grand bargain to contain North Korea. Do you declare yes or no?
5: So, yes. In the immortal words of Bob the Builder, can we fix it? Yes, we can. So I think China and the U.S. are closer to being able to forge an agreement on North Korea than uh, at any time in the past decade. Uh, In part, I think it's because Kim Jong-un has uh, changed the facts on the ground, uh, now can launch a missile strike uh, and perhaps a nuclear uh, warhead uh, in the near future that can uh, hit the United States. Uh, And that's changed the calculus here, and the Chinese understand that. In part, it's because we have a new president uh, for whom conventional wisdom and historical uh do not pose uh, any um, restrictions, uh, and uh, and also he wants all options on the table uh, and wants an agreement, uh, wants to make a deal.
1: Thank you, Liz Economy. <laughs> so let me take this first to Noah Feldman. You know, we, we've just come through a period where the United Nations Security Council passed uh, For the ninth time since 2006, they've passed sanctions against North Korea. The U.S. wanted some very, very tough sanctions. They wanted to freeze the leaders' international assets. They wanted to stop all imports of petroleum products. They didn't get that because China and Russia insisted on making it softer. What's the implication of that action by China and Russia? But right now, let's make it China Uh, in terms of this question of being able to forge a grand bargain.
6: To me, the implication is that China was willing to do the initial round of sanctions just thus far and no further, they're not willing to undertake steps that might actually put sufficient pressure on North Korea to make the regime totter. And that's, I think, a very significant moment for them. It's their way of saying that, yes, we're annoyed with the North Koreans, maybe more than annoyed. Yes, we're worried. Yes, we don't want regional destabilization. But we actually aren't prepared to do anything about it because fixing the problem would require steps that contradict our national interest. And, you know, we have allies like that, too, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, where we might want them to do things. And sometimes those allies say to us, no, you know, what's your point of leverage against us? And I think this is exactly what's happening to, to the Chinese in North Korea.
1: David Chambaugh, you're arguing that the bargain is doable. Mm. Uh, you change, you're changing your mind now?
3: <laughs> well, the problem is that North Koreans won't go peacefully into the night. You know, so even if the Americans and the Chinese could come, and the South Koreans and Japan and the other actors could come to agreement about regime transition... Um, the North Koreans aren't going to go along with it. But if there are ways to sort of uh, figure out some broader transition and coalition government or a phase transition between North and South... Uh, we haven't had these conversations. All
1: right, let's bring in Liz Economy. You're right, also David, a yes on this.
5: Yeah, David is um, absolutely right. There is no love lost uh, between uh, this Chinese leader uh, and Kim Jong Un. And while it's true that uh, you know, uh, it, it's not clear that uh, Kim Jong Un will go peacefully into the night. There are other options, right? There is the decapitation option. But you know, it took a long time. Could you could you, um,
1: sta- could you de- euphemize that word decapitation? decapitation. I, I think she meant it literally. That, it was not a euphemism I, I was at all. Kind just. Of was.
5: It kind of was. Thank you. Yeah, so it would mean the elimination of of Kim Jong-un, or perhaps we just send him to Switzerland with a billion dollars, and that would be a better way to to go.
4: I think the Rodman plan is as likely to work (laughs) as what we just heard. Um,
5: Hey, wait a minute. Ping-pong diplomacy goes to basketball diplomacy. Don't laugh. Uh, It's real. If
4: you want to go there, feel free. I don't think that's your yes vote. But my no vote... (laughs) Um, ...is uh, the fact that the North Koreans understand that Gaddafi didn't have nukes. Dead. Hussein, no nukes. Dead. Kim Jong-un, not dead. And, you know, I, I, I look at what's in front of him. I see a guy that wants to develop an ICBM with reentry capabilities wants to be in a position where truly the decapitation option is truly not on the table, and then we can do a deal, Now that's after containment. In other words, that's containing from a bigger place. America has history with that. We told the Indians and Pakistanis, no nukes. They do the nukes, they do the tests, we sanction them. We put serious sanctions. After, you know, 10 plus years, we pull the sanctions back. Why? Because they behaved No, because they didn't. They broke through the containment. We're like, well, we lost on that one, so I guess we got to deal with you guys now. Wait, did you just just use profanity? No. No. Um, So uh, my my point is that there is absolutely... I can see into the future, once the North Koreans develop a, a, a nuclear program that they consider is sufficiently robust to avoid the decapitation, we could absolutely, with the Chinese, get to a deal. We are not there yet.
3: Uh, war is not an option. Some sort of discussions need to take place uh, directly with the North, multi-party discussions. And again, I come back to the sort of unification dimension of all this. That's the one thing all parties agree on. North wants to unify, South wants to unify. Uh, the Americans are not opposed to it, the Chinese are not opposed to it. I think we need to kind of think beyond nukes, first of all. That's the American obsession. Uh, and for good reason. That's not the Chinese obsession.
6: Noah Feldman? I just wanted to point out directly in in response to David's really important point that there's a structural problem with a demilitarized, unified Korea that the U.S. wouldn't be defending, and that is China, right? So whatever this entity would be, for South Korea to agree to enter it, they're going to be aware that their entity will now be bordering China directly, and they will need a security guarantor, and that's only us, to my mind, this is the current conundrum of, of, of the Pacific, generally. Countries are living under the Chinese economic sphere of influence while depending on the U.S. as a security guarantor. They're playing both ends against the middle, and that has worked for those countries. Liz,
1: economy, you're, you're again arguing, yes, you think that a grand bargain can be forged to contain North Korea. What does this bargain look like in such a way that Kim Jong-un would actually be willing to comply with it?
5: First of all, I'm not sure there is a bargain that Kim Jong-un is is willing to comply with. The Chinese have put on the table the the freeze and freeze. Kim Jong-un would freeze uh, sort of the development of of nuclear weapons and we would not have any more uh, military uh, exercises with South Korea for the time being. Um, I think David's right. We have to get back to the table. You may laugh at the idea of basketball diplomacy, but actually, you know, that is what broke through uh, with the Chinese, right? The ping pong diplomacy was the first thing. Maybe we have. A round robin tournament with North Korea, China, the United States, and South Korea. The United States, uh, you know, forms some sort of peace treaty, right? And then we move to uh, the United States establishing a representative office. I mean, there are many, one of the interesting things about this conundrum is that there are so many different things that could come into play. Uh, And I think we're finally at a point where the Chinese are actually uh, desiring to do something.
1: And that concludes debate on this resolution. And now the future. Given everything that we have heard so far tonight, the question that demand's asking is contained in this resolution. China is destined for regional dominance. First to debate this is David Shambaugh. David Chambaugh, do you declare yes or no?
3: Turn it around and say no this time. Uh, and for two, two essential reasons. Uh, first, that others in the region uh, wouldn't stand for Chinese regional dominance. This is not the Ming Dynasty or the Song Dynasty where the tribute system uh, obtained and existed, and others uh, dutifully fell into the Chinese hierarchy. The Chinese may want that, but uh, I can tell you, with the exception of South Korea, um, not many in Asia want to go down that path. And secondly, there are, well, there are other actors of significance in the region Japan, India, Indonesia, and indeed the United States. So they would balance against China. This is the iron law of international relations. Um, So I don't foresee it for that reason. The second reason I don't uh, foresee Chinese dominance is because the Chinese are very capable of overstepping and overreaching. Like many other great powers, they are oftentimes bullying. uh, I'm sorry,
1: time is up on you. uh, I'm going to have to stop there. Thank you. China is destined for regional dominance. Ian Bremmer, do you declare yes or no?
4: I declare no. Um, So I agree very much with what uh, David had to say. I would also focus not just on East Asia, Southeast Asia, but Central Asia. Focus on Russia. The fact that the Chinese are increasingly just dominating places like Kazakhstan, as well as economically East Siberia, and the Russians are deeply uncomfortable with it. They don't have the population, but they have the military capability. And the Chinese don't know how to manage it. One belt, one road, they're putting all this money in a lot of countries, but Russia, not so much. Just remind oh, people, one belt, one road, what that's well, it's this, you know, trillion dollars that the Chinese are putting. It's kind of like their Marshall Plan, but without liberal democracy at the end. Um, and that's a short definition. Um, the... But, but I will tell you that while I don't think they're destined for regional dominance, I think it's quite possible they're destined for global dominance. And that really depends on whether or not, as Elon Musk says, they get AI right before other people do. That, for me, this is a big question.
1: Thank you, Ian Bremmer. Liz Economy, on the resolution, China is destined for regional dominance. Do you clear yes or no?
5: No surprise. I'm a no. Uh, I think destined is a big word, and it demands a big commitment, and I'm not prepared to make uh, that commitment. I see three significant impediments uh, to China uh, becoming the dominant regional power. First, right now the U.S. is uh, the dominant military power, uh, as General Petrae said, by an order of magnitude, and it has has demonstrated no indication of uh, being interested in abdicating uh, that position. Uh, Second, in economic terms, although China is a very important player in the region and indeed the largest trading partner for most of the countries, it is an inconsequential source of foreign direct investment uh, for all the countries in the region except for Laos, uh, Cambodia, and Myanmar. And then third goes back to exactly what David said, and that is that uh, nobody else in the region wants China to be the dominant regional power.
1: Thank you, Liz Economy. The resolution, China is destined for regional dominance. Noah Feldman, are you yes or no?
6: You know, on the one hand, you have three brilliant area experts, and on the other hand, you have the possibility of a real conversation. So uh, I'm going to go with yes. (laughs) Uh, Global dominance, I do not think, is an inevitable destiny for China, because for all the reasons that we've discussed, it is not yet in a position to achieve that. It may never be in a position to achieve that. China already has regional economic dominance, on issue after issue after issue, on country after country after country. Over a long period of time, other countries in the region will still have a desire. There's no question they have a desire to retain a close strategic relationship with the U.S. to protect themselves against China. But that will become increasingly difficult as the U.S. is less and less willing to provide that and no longer sees the benefits of doing that. I would say the Trump administration's policy here is the leaning edge of what may be a 50 or 75 year change in American attitudes. Take the question of whether the U.S. would at present use military force to defend Taiwan. If in your hearts you think the answer to that question is no, then the answer to this question is yes.
0: Thank
1: you very much, Noah Feldman. And you know, Noah, because you're such a good sport to take the other side on this one solo, I'm gonna, if, if you'd like to continue your thought, I'm going to give you another minute to go with it and then give us, uh, your opponent, something to chew on.
6: Okay, so I, I, I think uh, the subject of our debate tonight is, isn't primarily what does the U.S. public think, but I right. do urge people to ask themselves if, the US, if they would support in their hearts or predict that the U.S. would intervene militarily to protect not just Taiwan, but any of the Japan let's say, yeah, we're talking or about a for Christ's sake, right? Japan is a I mean, treaty you know,
5: ally. I mean, we are compelled I know. by treaties, and what I'm ta- so you're and, and saying and that we will back out of our treaty. Correct.
6: What I'm saying, Liz, huh. is that in the world that we all occupy of formally trained political scientists with a deep knowledge of political science norms, it's impossible to say that the United States would back away from its commitment, which is embodied in a treaty of international law. And what I'm saying is that I think many people in the room and many, many people in the country and a huge number of people who voted for Donald Trump would say that the answer is, no way, never heard of the treaty, definitely don't care about it.
5: And We should, if take, that's... We should take a vote right here.
6: <laughs> if the U.S. public can't sustain that sort of commitment over the long term, if it doesn't see a clear economic payoff, that is likely to shift... The geostrategy, the geopolitics of the region. This you know, economy. You're going to get the last right. word.
5: Yeah, I want to make a totally different point, and that is that we have not even raised the possibility that China is not going to be in a position to be a regionally dominant power because actually to, its economy is going to collapse, or at least it's going to slow down so significantly that it's not going to be able to continue on the path that it's on.
4: And
1: Ian, you look anxious to make a point. So go I'm for really
4: it. Not really anxious. No, I, I get, I get I, I. <laughs> I, I I agreed with I agreed with Liz there but but I, I just can't see if the Americans pull out, to me that does not ensure Chinese dominance. Instead it makes it much more likely that we're going to have very significant confrontation. The US staying in, I think, helps with stability. Totally agree with that. I hope by the way, I hope I'm wrong.
1: Oh you're so all agreeing. You're okay. <laughs> well that's good because that concludes this round of debate on this resolution. China is destined for regional dominance. All four of our debaters fought well. Thank you, everybody, for joining us and being willing to listen, being willing to change your mind, because that is the IQ2 way. I'm John Donvan. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Skirball Center at New York University. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Clea Chang is chief operating officer. Leah Matthau is vice president of programming. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit IQ2US.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philip Selendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rain, and Emily and Antoine Van Agtmel. From Intelligence Squared U.S., thank you.